Last weekend, Michael brought to a conclusion Jesus's time with the disciples in that small upper room in Jerusalem. It's in the company of those closest to him. Jesus, quite frankly, for hours has been teaching. He was giving them uh, final words. You know, we'd say this weighty words, right? Last words. Uh, As is often true with a master teacher, though, uh, the lessons don't end when the classroom time is over. And so they will depart uh, on this evening from the classroom, so to speak, but Jesus continues to teach. And as a master teacher, it's him teaching by what he does, by how he responds to the events that surround him. And I don't know that there's a greater lesson to be taught than how to die. And I would suggest that when Jesus leaves that upper room, uh, he's teaching us how to die. Now, I know that the cross will come and he will say it is finished and and that death, but I want to suggest that uh, when he leaves the upper room on this night, that he is dying a death. And he invites us, actually, if I can say this, he invites us into that death. Because he knows, he's already said it countless times, it's only in death that we live. And so I want us to walk with him uh, as he continues to teach and as he teaches us that there's a death that leads to life. They've left that room, they're walking, maybe under the, you know, under moonlight, maybe. Uh, It's dark. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of dark in this room. Um, it is, uh, if I can say it this way, there is a Good Friday darkness over our passage. And I don't want to remove it. I want to invite us to sit in it and be with Christ in it. So I'm going to attempt to help us see what the text says, but I'm also going to invite us to live the text, to experience the text. And what I'm saying here is I'm going to invite us to pray because that's where this text is going. And so at the end of the service, we'll take time and I'll I'll let you know what the time is and we'll take an extended time for you to pray. And I've got kneelers up here that you're able to come. You can pray where you are. Again, I'll address that in a moment. But here's what it'll look like over the next few moments. I'm gonna give us a broader, a redemptive historical context to take this one evening and set it in because we gotta see it in that context. And then I'm gonna ask three questions of this text. Uh, When we read it in a moment, you'll see it. It's, it's one of those portions of scripture. I, it's almost like you don't want to touch it. I'm being serious. You don't, I don't want to speculate. I don't, you know, you just, you just kind of go, that is a very intimate moment and you just want to let it be there. And I, and I hope we can do that, but I'll ask three questions and answer them out of the text and then we will pray and I'll invite you to pray. I want to put Jesus' prayer. Now, now you, know, you know where this is going, I think. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what the text picks up in Luke 22, verse 39. But I want to put Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in its biblical context. And so in order for us to do that, I don't want you to turn to Luke. I want you to turn to another garden, the first garden in a place called Eden. And so open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And here in Genesis 3, we find 
the story of creation and in chapter three, the fall. And I won't go through it all. We studied the first 12 chapters of Genesis some time ago. And Genesis one, God speaks and creates everything. In Genesis two, it's a recapitulation of that and it's more detailed and he provides everything that's needed for life. This is the big idea. Everything that's needed for life is provided abundantly. And we see this picture in Genesis two that life is communion with God, unhindered access and communion and intimacy with God and therefore with each other. That's what they had. Pristine, innocent, all that they needed, abundantly supplied. When you get to the end of Genesis 2 and it's all very good and your expectation is, I think maybe they're going to have the first thanksgiving for all this abundance. Maybe you know, they'll worship for all this abundance. But that's not what happened. Not in this garden. Follow along in your Bibles, Genesis 3. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Before the juice dried on their lips, creation was jolted into a black hole of depravity and corruption and loss and destruction. You see, before they bit, you know, understand, before they bit, cells in the body didn't multiply uncontrollably. Before they bit. People didn't hurt each other. There was, there was not, there were no lies. <laughs> there was no harm. There was no hurt. There was no death. There was no pain before they bit. But after they bit, we have what we have. And what I want you to understand is that when you look at your iPad or computer screen or your old newspaper, you know, every day, the headlines and the stories and the loss and the depravity and the corruption and the pain and the hardship and the animosity and the evil, all of that goes back to this garden and the choice that Adam and Eve made. You can say it this way, the first Adam, because that's what the Bible describes, you know, Adam, this Adam is the first Adam and Jesus is the second Adam, but the first Adam succumbed to the voice of Satan in the garden. And if I can say it this way, in some, I don't, you know, we can't see it, but somewhere in here, in their mind, emotions and will, somewhere in here, they decided 
when they reached for the apple, I can't trust him. You see, they decided when they reached for the apple, there's, there's a better way. It was all there for them, but they succumbed to the temptation. Now this is too hard. I'm going to do it my way. They succumbed to that temptation. Now in the midst of this, God makes a promise. I want you to see this. Look at verse 14. We won't read it all the section of the the chapter, but look at 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now notice the pronouns like out of the blue. Your seed, it says he, singular, masculine. He shall bruise you on the head, bruises, crush. He'll destroy you, crush, fatal. You shall bruise him on the heel, not fatal in the end. That is what uh, theologians describe as the first hint of the good news. It's like the first hint of the gospels in there. Now, please understand what I'm about to say, the original readers didn't read that and and know this. They didn't go, oh yeah, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. That's Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, was buried and raised. They don't get, they don't get all that. We do because we're on the other side of the cross. But please understand it's it's appropriate when we see that to, to know we know this, that when God made that promise, he set in motion the history and the story of redemption. I'm going to redeem this fallenness and I'm gonna bring a people back to myself. And for thousands of years, you know, he, he, he put a system in place that helped people understand to be forgiven, sin must be paid for. Therefore, someone must die to pay the penalty of the sin. You're going to kill animals for thousands of years and shed their blood because life is in the blood and life must be paid. That's justice. But love also comes along to say, God, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the lamb. I'm gonna pay the penalty myself. You see, so for thousands of years, everything's, God's preparing the people to understand that Jesus shows up to be the lamb of God, to pay the penalty. And he crushes Satan's head, how? By dying in death. Death is swallowed up. Now, Luke, we've been in this study for two years. And Luke has been so careful to show us way back, you know, two years ago, we're going to celebrate it here in the next few weeks, but the incarnation, this is the one. That's the seed, the male child born of a virgin. And then Jesus lives his life and we look at him, we go, he claims to be Messiah. And everything he does validates that he's Messiah. So Luke has been very, uh, you know, forthright and detailed to show us this is the one who's going to take the sin of the world on himself. Now, leaving the Garden of Eden, let me invite you now to go to another garden in Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22. Flip back in your Bibles to Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 39. 
the son of God, understand, now stands on the precipice. This is, this is the moment that he's gonna take upon himself the penalty that sin deserves for, every, for all of us. He's, he's right at that moment. It, 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 I, you know, it's night, it's dark. Um, he crosses, you know, the Kidron Valley, goes up onto the Mount of Olives. And what he bears, I, I don't know how else to say this. I don't know that we, I know this. We can't fully grasp it. The weight that creates the agony of soul in him. We can't totally get there. But we can be mindful of this. What he's getting ready to do traces all the way back to the first garden and the cost of that rebellion he's going to satisfy. Let's stand up. Can we do that one more time? We'll read the text and I'll ask those three questions. Text for today and he came out and proceeded and as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him and being in agony, he was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You can be seated. Thank you. Three questions I want to ask of the text. What was the temptation that the disciples might succumb to? And what, 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 what did he say? You know, he said, pray that you won't enter temptation. What, what's, what temptation did they face? What was the cup? Secondly, what was the cup that Jesus dreaded, that he agonized over? And third, how was Jesus' prayer answered? Again, that's, that's holy ground. And, and it's kind of like I don't want to stir up the mud. Uh, but, and, but I'm going to use these three questions to maybe try and keep it clear and help us get a hold of the text. Here's the first one, the disciples' temptation, okay? What was the temptation that the disciples might succumb to? When he says that you might not, you know, fall into temptation, it's this, pic it's this picture of being, it's succumbing to that temptation. It's not sin to be tempted, but we sin when we succumb, give in to it, okay? What might that be? I want to suggest that their temptation was the very sin that Adam and Eve succumbed to. I think it's the same one. That for them, the way of the cross and God's plan of redemption and his purpose in redemption, they're, gonna, they're tempted to go, there's gotta be a better way. 
No, he doesn't have to suffer. You see it? Because when you read Luke's gospel, what happens every time Jesus says, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm gonna, what do they do? Change the subject. They don't want to, no, 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 no. Let's go. Let's go. They don't want to hear it. What, is, what does Peter do right after his great confession? Right after that great confession, Jesus says, now I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no way. That's not going to happen. I'm going to eat the apple because there's a better way. This can't be God's way. Do you see that? The temptation to succumb to that. Somebody's going to whack off somebody's ear in just a few minutes. There's got to be a better way, you know. No, you can't take my... Now, the principal application in the text certainly is for them not to succumb, to go, you know, to, you can't crucify him. You, you know, it's, it's, they, they can't, that's God's way, the way of redemption. But I think it's appropriate for us to take a broader application to say this. Aren't you and I constantly tempted to go, there's got to be a better way. This is too hard. I'm going to make my own. I don't think God's going to come through. So I'm going to. See, we're constantly tempted in the same way to say this way is too hard. They can't be God's way. I'll make my own way and provision. It's their temptation. I think it's ours. Second thing I asked was, what's this cup that Jesus is dreading? It's, it's uh, very clear in the Old Testament. It's the cup of God's wrath. How do we know that? Well, in the Old Testament, we, we see over and over again, for example, Psalm eleven six. The psalmist says, upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. A cup came to be synonymous for a, a portion that you've been given. You know, this is your piece of the pie, so to speak. You know, we'd say it, but they, they called it a cup that would, would be, here's your portion. And over and over in the Old Testament, it's described again in Isaiah 51, 17 as God's wrath. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. He's gonna pour out his anger and you're gonna have to drink his anger and his wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of the wine of my wrath from my hand and cause all the nations whom I send you to, to drink it. In other words, you're gonna take the cup of my wrath and they'll drink it down because my wrath will be upon them. It's the cup of God's wrath, his punishment for sin. Now, to drink this cup was to take in his own person. This is the part that quite frankly is beyond human understanding, I think. But it's for Jesus to take in himself the full wrath of God on sin. Men and women, this is not like apportioned out to that nation. You know, I'm gonna pour some wrath on this nation. This is all the wrath of God on sin poured out on one man. I can't fathom that. Now, what it will mean for him to drink that cup, the full wrath of God, it means this, and this is where maybe we can get a little handle on it. It will mean that the Son of God will be separated from the Father and the Spirit. That ne that's never been in eternity. But you see, when he absorbs, when he takes, swallows the cup, that means he's separated from his Father. 
And at some minuscule level, and I mean this, not to be, uh, it's just the way it is. I mean, we can't totally get this, but take the person you love the most, your most treasured relationship, and imagine that it's removed from you. It's gone, that relationship is gone. And the loss you feel, that is just a vapor of a hint of what Jesus Christ will feel when he's separated from the Father for you and for me. So we don't have to feel that separation. That's the agony, agonizai, the agony that he feels as he prays this prayer and prepares to drink this cup. Third question was this, how does the father answer the prayer of the son? Interesting, isn't it? Verse 43, now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. His body was convulsing in perspiration. Y'all, I don't know, quite frankly, if, if it was blood. I, I mean, there's you know some that say that the body can do that. I guess it can, but Luke just says it was like blood. It, I think it, you know, my, Michael's comment last week, if plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense, it could be certainly when you cut yourself and you bleed, you know, he's sweating like that. It could be, you know, he's sweating profusely, physically. His body's convulsing with the weight of this sin. But notice, God did not remove the cup. Remember this, the soldiers at this point in our story, are, they've gotta be close to the garden because they're gonna show up in just the next sentence. God did not fling the soldiers away. God did not reach down and pluck his son from the garden and hide him and put him behind his. God did not change the circumstances around Jesus Christ. What did God do? God sent an angel and strengthened him. And notice that when he was strengthened by the angel, it says he prayed fervently and then he was sweating like drops of blood which tells us this there is a strengthening men and women that I think only comes when we're praying Michael mentioned last week that Jesus said to Peter after you've come through this go and strengthen your brothers Okay, that's, that's one Greek word, go and strengthen, and it means go encourage your brothers. But when the angel comes, and it says the angel comes strengthening, it's not even the same root word. We're just talking about totally different word. And the word strengthening here is putting strength in. It's not, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. You'll make it. It's not that. It's in some mis more mysterious way, so to speak, putting strength in. In, infusing them, infusing him, infusing you, infusing me with a strength. Where did that happen? When he was praying. When Jesus rose from prayer, I want to suggest the battle is over. Now there's a lot getting ready to happen. And it's painful. It's awful. But I want to suggest that the battle, it's, it's done when he gets up from this prayer. Strengthened by God, he walks toward the cross. Let me say a word about Jesus' prayer. Some wonder, was Jesus wavering? No, he was not wavering. He was not about to bail out. 
Did he, did, was he gonna avoid the cross? No, he's not gonna avoid the cross. Michael covered this last week. What does Jesus say? Back up in verse 35, 37, for I tell you that, that, that this which is written must be fulfilled in me as certain as the promise God made in Genesis 3 that there would come this seed of a woman that would crush the serpent's head and as certain as Isaiah's promise in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah must suffer and it's gonna be Jesus. It's gonna happen. So Jesus is not wavering like, I don't know if I'm not gonna go to the cross. No, our redemption was never in jeopardy. <laughs> there's, not, that's, there's none of that here. It's Jesus in his humanity, feeling the full weight of the agony of God's wrath and separation from his father. I like the way that Matthew Henry says it. He says, this was the language of that innocent dread of suffering, which being really and truly man, he could not but have in his nature. So what? Well, so let's pray. I don't know what's going on in your world, but I know what's going on in mine. And I don't think it's much different. I know that we all live in a broken world where evil is real and Satan continues to sift God's people. There's no one in the room that Satan does not sift and seek that you might succumb, that you would find yourself in a difficult spot and reach for the apple. I do all the time. This is, I don't like this relationship. I don't like that. I don't want this in my life. God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of this and... We're all there. And Jesus models for us a prayer. Not just how to pray, but what prayer does. One of my favorite books my, I read to my kids when they were little. I've referenced this before. Some of you all, some of you all read this. Your kids were going on a bear hunt. Man, you know, when you read, you know, we're going on a bear hunt and I won't read the whole thing to you, but it's, it's always, we're going on a bear hunt. We're gonna get a big one, right? They go out and they come to a big field of grass. Oh no, grass, can't go over it, can't go under it. We've gotta go through it. Oh no, mud, can't go over it. We gotta go through it. Life, it's like a bear hunt. And I assure you, there are things in your world and mine right now I can't go over, I can't go under. I've gotta go through it, but I don't have the strength to go through it, but I can find the strength as I'm praying and God infuses me with strength to rise up and go through it. That's prayer. That's communion with the Father. And that's what I want to invite us to do. Ronnie, if you and Nicole would come out, I'm gonna ask them to pl play a moment. I've got the clock right in the back of the room, so I'll end us right on time. But we've got at least 10 minutes, quite frankly, that we can pray and we can enter into the text. Matthew Henry again says this, If God proportion the shoulders to take the burden, we shall have no reason to complain. 
whatever he is pleased to lay upon us. And if I can say it like this, I want to invite us in these next few moments to allow God to proportion our shoulders. Because when he does, we need not complain of the burden we bear. You can pray right where you are. I'm gonna encourage you to pray right where you are. For some of you, quite frankly, you know, it, it, it may be you need to get up and walk a stone's throw away from where you're sitting and just come up here. I mean, there's no magic in this, men and women. I'm not trying to manipulate you in any way. But I will say this, there is something to getting up sometimes and moving your body and kneeling and praying. And that's all we're inviting you to do. Look at your Bible and look at Jesus's prayer. Father, just pray his prayer. Oh God, one who loves me. If you're willing, and then just tell him. I mean, I, if you're willing, get this out, move this, change it. If you're willing, I need, if you're willing, but in the same prayer, it's one prayer. If you're willing, yet not my will. You know, it's one prayer, but you offer it all. Yet not my will, but yours. And I just think in the offering of that prayer, the Spirit of God strengthens. And I'm inviting you to pray that way. Some of you can come, not everyone by any means, you know, but if you feel led, come and pray here. Others of you pray right where you are and I'll dismiss us in a few moments at our appropriate time.